Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be, mi to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be, the, shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belonging to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But, for, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are sub subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be put all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead, if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beast of uh, Aphias, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. I started playing guitar when I was 12 years old. At high school, I played a few, in a few rock bands. Um, and at one point, I was in a Christian metal band years ago. You can check us out on Spotify. Ask me the name later. Um, I've also played in, for music, for church for a little bit. Um, all that to say is I'm, big, music is a big part of my life. I, I like to say I listen to all kinds of genres. I'm not like Malachi. I'm not a walking Shazam. But, <laughs> but one genre I really never got into that I just wasn't very well versed in was country. I might have just offended some of you. Um, I, I listen to it here and there. It's not that I don't like it. I just, it's just like not my go-to. It's just, it's just not my thing. It's okay. Actually, this week, it's kind of been growing on me more and more. But the other day, I was on my way to the office at church, and some country came up on my Spotify playlist. And I thought, sure, why not? Let's make this a country drive. And as I was listening... I noticed that each song had a very similar theme to it. <laughs> it's not like back roads, pickup trucks, those things. I mean, that was in there. But every song, back to back to back, it was the craziest thing, had this theme, and you'll know what I'm talking about, that time in this life is short, and you need to cherish every moment you have. 
don't blink or you're going to miss this. <laughs> Songs like, like you were, live like you were dying, if tomorrow never comes, buy dirt. Literally all these songs were coming up on my playlist back to back and I'm like, is this all they sing about in country? What's going on? All of these um, songs, it made me think that and dozens of other songs like these are attempting, I looked them up, they're attempting to make sense of death. But this prescription to solve this problem, that life is short between these different songs, they kind of varied, right? Some give the answer to the brevity of life by saying, focus on the simple things, focus on the family, make life meaningful, focus on relationships, values, the beauty of like the natural world over like possessions and success. But then there were other songs that were conveying this message of this life is all you got, so live it up. No shoes, no shirt, no problem. Make the good times last as long as you can, right? When everything lets you down, a long neck, ice cold beer never broke my heart. I'm not here for a long time. I'm here for the good time. So pour the moonshine, right? You know what I'm talking about. I got to give it credit. Country recognizes that this life is short. It does come, in, come to an end, that death is coming. And it attempts to make sense of it. It's a pretty philosophical genre, right? But if all we can do is just say, make the most of this moment as much as you can, it doesn't deal with the problem of death. If death is not defeated, the, the world's philosophies will inevitably lead to the mantra, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's put on our cowboy hats and drink some moonshine. But the Christian worldview says something very different. It says that death has been defeated. This life is not all that there is. And, and that changes everything. So my big idea, if you're writing notes, if Christ is not risen, then nothing matters. But since he is risen, it all matters. I'll pray for us, and we'll get started. Actually, next point. Pull that next slide up. I'll, I'll break it down. Malachi likes to do this. I, I forgot to on my manuscript. So, three points. My first point, if Christ is not risen, death still reigns over us. But because Christ is risen, he reigns over death. And then third point, since Christ is risen, how will you live? I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. God, I thank you for these students getting to serve us. Um, Lord, I pray that you work in their hearts and all of our hearts um, the brevity of life. Um, that, we need some, that we need someone to save us. That, that death looms over us and that it's only in Christ um, it has been defeated. Lord, I pray that you would work on our hearts, that you would remove any distractions this morning and that you would draw us to yourself, that we would glory in your risen King Jesus. Amen. So this past year in youth, on Wednesday nights, we have been walking through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We called our series Church Life. We called it Church Life because all of the issues addressed in the letter have to do with how we are to relate to one another in the life of the church, 
both what we believe and how we live. And the context around this letter is that Paul had planted the church in Corinth, established them in the truth of the gospel, spent a considerable amount of time there, and then moved on to other places with his ministry. And it wasn't long until he heard of divisions going on in the church. He heard of divisions over which preacher they should follow and why they should follow them, right? They were forming cliques over Paul and Apollos and Peter, either for how eloquent Apollos Apollos was of a speaker or that Peter was an original apostle, rather than on the gospel message that they preached. He heard of a number of different issues in the church, ranging from sexual immorality, confused views of marriage, lawsuits against each other over just petty things. He heard of ways they were not putting their preferences aside for the sake of love for one another. In all of these issues, the running theme is division. They were divided in doctrine and how they thought about things. It wasn't informed by the gospel, by what Paul taught them, but it was informed by what the city of Corinth around them believed in. They were letting the world influence them rather than they influencing the world. Because they were divided in doctrine, they were divided in practice, and it was causing the church to tear. And so Paul is now writing to the church, and he's hitting on these different issues. And the running theme of 1 Corinthians is this, what what we like to call the melodic line. Um, Paul calls a divided church to be united by pursuing Christ-like love in the life of the church. So Paul, he starts sewing the church together with the biggest and most important stitch, the gospel. He hits on the foundation of it, Christ in him crucified. And this good news, it's upside down according to the world's standards. The world sees the gospel as foolish, right? Following a king whose means of conquering is through death on a cross, That message, however, turns out to be the wisdom and power of God that saves sinners. This is the foundational stitch that Paul begins with, and he threads through his letter. And as he comes to the end of his letter, chapter 15, he ends with a final issue in the church. There are questions and doubts about the resurrection. It's what chapter 15 is all about. And the resurrection is foundational to the Christian faith. Just as he began his letter with the foundation of the gospel, Christ in him crucified, so he must finish sowing the rest of that foundational gospel, Christ resurrected, reigning from the dead. We must have both. We cannot have one without the other. First point, if Christ is not risen, death still reigns. I encourage you guys to have your Bibles open, um, looking at the text We're going to focus at this point, verses 12 to 19. We see the issue raised in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The Corinthians believed Christ rose from the dead. And we know that from verses 1 to 11, that Paul had preached to them the gospel. He was there and he he gave them it. That Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Though they had heard this and received this, and as verse 2 says, they are now standing on this, 
There are those in the church, however, who do not believe that Christians will have a bodily resurrection. So again, they're looking like the world around them. The city of Corinth and the rest of the Greco-Roman world, they did not have a category for bodily resurrection. They, they saw the body as something that the soul needs to detach from, that isn't really a part of who we are. They saw life after death as some sort of dreamy soul, spiritual state, not a conscious resurrection with a linear future. And very much like today. And Paul is, he's going to now use an if-then flow of logic to argue the resurrection. If this is the case, then this is the result. If this is not the case, then this is not the result. So he, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen from the dead. And if Christ is not risen from the dead, then this whole Christianity thing is pointless because we're not going to rise from the dead. So Paul lays out seven consequences if Christ is not risen from the dead. Number one, if Christ is not raised from the dead, Paul's preaching is pointless. He's wasting his time going from region to region, preaching a gospel that is a sham, and he's getting persecuted for it. Number two, if Christ has not risen from the dead, the Corinthians' faith is pointless. They're entrusting their lives, future hope, current circumstances on a gospel that's a sham. If Christ is, number three, if Christ has not risen from the dead, Paul's making himself out to be a liar, misrepresenting God. And if this was a hoax to get something out of it, some personal gain, him and the rest of the apostles would be the world's worst hoaxers because they preach a fake gospel for absolutely nothing but suffering, persecution, and death. Number four, if Christ is not risen from the dead, the Corinthians' faith is foolish. A, a, a popular verse in 1 Corinthians is one eighteen. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the world, the cross is foolish, but to us in reality, it's the power of God that saves. But if Christ is not raised and he's still in the grave, this verse would be flipped on its head, and those who would see the cross as foolish, they would be right. It would be foolish to follow someone who called themselves a king only to be humiliated, crucified, and dead in the grave. Number five, if Christ has not risen from the dead, those who have fallen asleep, and when he says fallen asleep, in other words, those who trusted it in the promises of God in the Old Testament before Jesus, who are said not to have perished but fallen asleep and are awaiting their bodies to be raised, is really not the case. Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, and all those who trusted in God's future Messiah are now lost and perished. Promise never fulfilled for them. Number six, if Christ is not risen from the dead, we're still in our sins. Our sin is not paid for. Condemnation is still deserved for us. Still, sin still is reigning over us, and death's curse is still over us. Number seven, if Christ has not risen from the dead, kind of in summary, we are all, of all people, most to be pitied. We have no hope in this life, and we have no hope in the next life. 
There's no one to be more pitied than Christians because we put all our trust in a sham. It's one thing for someone to die for something they believe in. People do it all the time. It's another thing for the apostles to die for something they know is a lie, which is the resurrection of Christ, if he is still in the grave. So here's the thing. The Corinthians let the influence of the culture shape how they viewed God's word. They didn't consider how drastic the implications were. There's huge implications if there is no resurrection. We just walked through that. And our culture today tempts the church to believe that there's no literal resurrection of Christ. It could be metaphorical, they say. We cannot have anything less than the risen, reigning, victorious king. The resurrection changes everything. And not only the doctrine of the resurrection, but we must not compromise on other things, like how we are to think about sexual morality, how we're to think about the authority and credibility of the Bible, how we're to think about human identity and who God is. We cannot pick and choose what we want to believe and not believe in God's word. The consequences are too great. Second point, but because Christ is risen, he reigns over death. We'll focus in on verses 20 to 28, and the, the first, within the first, uh, first section of that is Christ's resurrection secures our resurrection. Paul has walked down now the logical conclusion if Christ had not been risen from the dead, but now he backtracks to what really is the case, that Christ really is raised from the dead. If he really is raised from the dead, then the implications are huge all the way, the other way around. This life is not all that there is. Everything Jesus said is true. All that he claimed about himself is now true. And, it, and that means that the Bible is true in its story, that God created us for him, yet we turned from him. It means that he is holy and we are not that we need a savior because we are cursed with death, and this death is eternal. It, it means now that we must come to terms with these things one way or another. Verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Notice the word first fruits. It's the first crop in the harvest. When you see how abundant the first crops are, you know the rest of the harvest is coming, and it's going to be great. Christ's resurrection is the first crop of the harvest. Because Christ is risen, we have assurance, and we will follow him and rise with him. What Paul does next is he takes us back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Verse 21, For as by a man came death... By a man comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Before sin came into the world, the first man, Adam, was completely free. Free from sin, free from death. But when he sinned, the fall happened. Adam took on a sin nature and the curse of death. What he was once free from, he is now bound to. 
He took on not just physical death, that is separation from the body and soul, but also a spiritual death, that is separation from God. The first thing that happened is Adam and Eve were separated from God. They were cast out of the garden. And we all have this sin nature and the curse of death. We cannot escape them because we are all under our federal head, Adam. Under him, death is our due. We went through Romans. Romans 5.12 says the same thing. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But since Christ is risen from the dead, those who are under Christ, not Adam, but Christ, will follow him not into death because death could not hold him, but follow him into resurrection. If Christ is risen from the dead, we can trust he is the first resurrection of all those who trust in him. But if Christ is risen from the dead, someone might ask, why aren't all Christians resurrected with him now? And verse 23 answers that for us. He says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to him, to Christ. Christ is ascended in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and we know one day Christ will come again. It is then believers will rise with him. And this leads us into verses uh, 24 to 28. Christ's resurrection establishes the kingdom. Verses 24 to 28, Paul goes on to explain how this will play out. And at a glance, these verses can seem confusing, right? There's a lot of he and him, somebody putting all things under the feet of someone else. Who are we talking about? What's going on here? It seems easy to glance at and just glance over and just move on. But these verses, they're so rich in doctrine. We, We can commit a whole sermon to just these four verses. But these verses show that Christ, as the risen, reigning Son of God, is defeating every rule, authority, and power. This phrase, rule, authority, and power, it reminds us of Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. God the Father is the one subjecting every enemy of Christ under Christ as his footstool. For he, the Son, must reign until he, the Father, has put all his enemies under his, the Son's, feet. And this points us to our call to worship passage this morning. Psalm 8, 5 to 6, says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And Psalm 8, it's a great psalm. It was meant to be for Adam and all mankind in its original context. What it means to be in the image of God is to have dominion over all creation that God has made and and God has given to us. But rather than dominion and life with God, we chose sin and death. We want to be our own God. 
and we inherited it, sin and death. But now we see Jesus, the true and better Adam, perfectly and truly living out Psalm 8. And it is being fulfilled and will fully be fulfilled when all things are destroyed, including his last enemy, death. Notice what Paul calls death in verse 26. An enemy. Death is an enemy. And people say that death is a part of life. No, death is an enemy of the life. Verse 27 is, we, we see next in verses 27 and 28, Paul is just making sure that we don't get this doctrine wrong, right? Um, when he just, he spends some time saying, when he says all things, it's accepting the Father. And then when all things are handed to the Son, under the Son's feet, the Son is actually going to hand it all to the Father, that God may be all in all. The bottom line from these verses that in the end, is that in the end, sin and evil does not win, Sorrow and suffering do not win, and most of all, death does not win. But in the end, God wins, and he gets all the glory. And the good news is that we no longer have to be under Adam as an enemy of Christ and be swept up into death, but we can be under the second Adam, united to Christ and be swept up in resurrection. Psalm 8 can be true for you and me because it's ultimately true in King Jesus. And this brings us to our last point. Third point, since Christ is risen, how will you live? Focusing in on verses 29 to 34. Everyone has a response to death. Some will do all they can not to talk about it. Others will embrace it calling it a natural part of life. Some try to stay far away from death, staying healthy and with medications. Others try to look young with cosmetics. Young people typically have the mindset that they don't need to think about it because they think it's just so far from them. While the older eventually must come to terms one way or another with its inevitability, we all must. Death is universal and inevitable. It is not something we can control. It isn't someone we can negotiate with. It comes for all. Everyone will come face to face with it, whether it's a death of a loved one or a near-death experience. And one day, everyone under Adam will stand on the edge of this life and must take the next step pushed into the chasm of death. And quite honestly, I can't think of anything more fearful than that. No one under Adam has come back from death. We all, in some way or another, will respond to it. What will it be and how will you live because of it? These next verses, we see the Corinthians responded it to one way. We see how Paul responds to it. And lastly, he calls us, to respond to it. So first, how the Corinthians responded to death, verse 29. The Corinthians respond to death in their own way in verse 29. He says, otherwise, what do people mean 
by being baptized on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This is, a, this is an interesting verse. Uh, we don't see this idea of baptism for the dead anywhere else in the Bible, and Paul is using it in a negative sense towards them. And so being baptized on behalf of the dead, it's not something we should prescribe for ourselves because the Bible never prescribes it. Just because something is described in the Bible doesn't mean it's always prescribed. Yet other religions like Mormonism has taken it and made it a part of their practice as a means of salvation. We need to understand Scripture in light of Scripture. It is unscriptural to think we can live life apart from faith in Christ as our only means of salvation, and we, it, it, we don't see anywhere where we get to put in our will, so to speak, hey, can, when I die, can so-and-so be baptized for me? Hebrews 9.27, and just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So how do we make sense of this verse? What were the Corinthians intending with it? I don't think we need to speculate too much on what was going on here. I don't think it is the point, because Paul doesn't think it is the point. Otherwise, he'd probably spend a chapter on explaining all this right? So, so, so far, we know the Corinthians are denying a bodily resurrection. The point is that Paul is revealing their inconsistencies, showing how they are baptizing on behalf of the dead with other people's bodies, right? It seems like the rest of the Greco-Roman world around them, they're believing in, like I said earlier, some sort of spiritual afterlife where the body leaves the soul leaves the body for good as if the body was an evil thing to get rid of and is floating around in some sort of dreamy afterlife. And this, is, this just goes to show that the body is part of who we are. We are body and soul knit together. And, so, and Paul talks about elsewhere that what we do with our bodies matters, that we were bought with a price, and so we ought to glorify God with it. But he is saying with his baptism for the dead, he's basically saying whatever you're doing with baptism for the dead thing, it doesn't make sense because you're including your body in the whole process while denying bodily resurrection altogether. That's Paul's point. I don't think there's no need um, going, to, going on speculating on this idea on baptism of the dead other than to say it is their way of making sense of death that doesn't line up with the resurrection of Christ. There is a fear of death behind it as if it has not been defeated by Christ. But then we see how Paul responds to death in verses 30 to 32. He responds very differently. He says in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul, he goes back to the rhetorical scenario of the if-then. If there's no resurrection, then why this? And he, he asks, if, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then why would I go to Ephesus and preach the gospel that would get me killed there? Why would I stick my neck out 
every day. If there is nothing after this life, we all might as well live out the mantra, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. All this life would be about is getting all you can for yourself out of this life because it's all you got. Let's put on our cowboy hats and drink some moonshine. That would be seen as life to the fullest. And Paul's life would be seen as a wasted life. Why would you, why would you restrain yourself to living these moral codes and to, to going across the world in these horrible conditions and getting persecuted if, if, if this is all you got? And so many see it that way. That's a wasted life. But Christ is risen from the dead. The second Adam has come back from the dead when no one else has. And that means Paul too, this is his hope, he too will rise from the dead. So the Corinthians, they're, por- they're performing these baptisms for some ritualistic, I would say vague hope for the dead. That's just their response to it. But Paul, he serves them with an absolute confidence in the hope of the resurrection. And that's why Paul can be face to face with death and not have this impending fear because death has been defeated, it's lost its sting. And that means the, the idea of living life to the fullest versus a wasted life is flipped on its head, right? The world's got the meaning of life completely wrong. Life is not about mucking around in self-absorbed, unsatisfying sin, thinking you're happy, happy for a brief moment of maybe 80 years and that's it onto the grave, eternity under death. That's a wasted life. If Christ is risen from the dead, life is about him. And that's a good thing. He is the source of all joy, all meaning, all happiness. He's the source of eternity. You and I were made for him. And so that brings us to our call to respond We're told in verses 33 to 34, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is finally the first imperative that Paul gives in this whole passage. He says, do not be deceived, but wake up. All of this passage is working to this application. Do not go on sinning. The morning is dawning. Christ is coming. It's time to wake up. You see what sin is described as here? It's, as, it's described as a pitiful, drunken, slumped over sleepiness lived in this life, followed by death. If Christ is risen, why would you go on living life, sinning as if he hadn't. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. And he's coming to put all enemies under his feet. If you're not a Christian, the fearful news is that this is you. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I, we need a new federal head. The indulgence of the flesh cannot save. The works of the flesh cannot save. Christ alone saves. He's the risen one in whom you will be raised to when you take hold of his righteousness. What an assurance. If you are a Christian, what we believe of the future affects how we will live in the present. And Paul uses this phrase, bad company ruins good morals. It's from uh, Menander's comedy Theus back in the day. <laughs> even, the point is that even the unbelieving world understands this, right? Those who you surround yourself with will affect how you think and thus how you act. It doesn't mean Christian need, uh, Christians, they need to live under rocks and keep away from everyone who uh, doesn't think the way we think. It does mean we are called to live in the world, but not of it. And I, I would say there's something to be said about who you let in to the vulnerable parts of your life, right? Who are you trusting to let have a part in your sanctification? Bad company ruins good morals. And we also know that bad theology ruins good morals. What we believe of the future affects how we live in the present. Sin makes us drowsy to the future promises of God. And it shows in how we live. It's time to wake up. Let's live day to day, relying on Him, coming to Him in prayer day to day by His grace with the conscious hope that Christ is risen from the dead and he is coming again. When you are tempted to fall into sin, remember it's a drunken stupor compared to the glory of life in Christ, both this life and the next. He promises that. I just want to conclude. Um, Pastor and author Tim Keller passed away from cancer and into the joy and glory of his master last Friday. It was big news. Thinking about this passage, he had a lot to say on the hope of resurrection. And I just wanted to close reading an excerpt from his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He reflects on a thyroid surgery to remove any remaining cancer tissue. And it was a surgery Uh, that him and his family were really nervous about, he describes. And as I read it, it just made me think how much of a difference it is between those who have an anticipation and a hope, who look forward to the resurrection promise in Christ, versus those who don't. And when you you don't have hope, it's fear. And so he, he says... On the morning of my surgery, after I said my goodbyes to my wife and sons, I was wheeled into a room to be prepped. And in the moments before they gave me the anesthetic, I prayed. And to my surprise, I got a sudden, clear, new perspective on everything. It seemed to me that the universe was an enormous realm of joy, mirth, and high beauty. And of course it was. 
Didn't the triune God make it to be filled with his own boundless joy, wisdom, love, and delight? And, with this, and within this great globe of glory was only one little speck of darkness, our world, where there was temporarily pain and suffering, but it was only one speck, and soon that speck would fade away and everything would be light. And I thought, it doesn't really matter how the surgery goes. Everything will be all right. Me, my wife, my children, my church, will all be all right. I went to sleep with a bright peace on my heart. I reflected on that, and I just thought, that is the difference for those who look forward to the hope of the resurrection. It's in Christ alone. Let's pray.